Amen. Psychologists from Keele University in England have documented the analgesic benefits of cussing. What they've discovered is that people who don't normally swear in their everyday life are able to submerge their hands in ice water for twice as long by ripping off a few swear words. Here's the research from Richard Stevens in the Journal of Pain. Our hypothesis is that by swearing, the speaker experiences an emotional response due to breaking a taboo. And the emotional response is sufficient to set off an adrenaline surge that brings increased pain tolerance. If you swear too often in everyday situations, the power of swearing won't be there when you really need it. <laughs> swearing can be an effective and readily available short-term pain reliever if you are in a situation where there's no access to medical care or painkillers. <laughs> I don't know. I would suggest you experiment with this in your small groups. <laughs> that said, here's what I do know. We are going to need some pain language for this life. We are going to need to know how to talk to God when we're in pain. The reason is, things are not the way they're supposed to be. Came across a painting last week I wanted to share with you. It really grabbed a hold of me. It's by William Adolphe Bouguereau, a French artist. Painted this in 1888 after the death of his son. It's Adam and Eve with their dead son Abel. The dark and brooding sky. It grabbed onto me, and I, I see three things in it. First, I see Adam and Eve weeping, knowing that it was their choice in the garden that brought those skies and this moment. All of us and this great mystery of how we in Adam and Eve, them representing the human race, we being even present in them in some mysterious way, we are complicit in the fall. What's wrong with the world? We are. What caused everything wrong in the world? We did. Our choice. Our choice to move away from God, move away from our neighbor, and move away from nature. Our choice. We are complicit in curvatus in say augustine said turned in on ourselves i see secondly the scars the wounds of cain's rage so often in this life we will be hurt by the choices that other people make choices that we have no control over but we bear the consequences Cain's rage leaves scars. And then I see a dead son. And I see in that 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 is all of our fate. We all die. There is death in the world, which means mourning is inescapable. 
I look at that painting and then go to the Psalms where we've been living the past few weeks and understand that 70%, listen to this, please, 70% of the Psalms are lament. God hands us this book and he says, pray these. This is the model. Here are the templates. I want you to pray this way. And 70% of the prayers are lament. So today, we are going to talk about lament. We are going to learn how to pray lament. We are going to talk about why lament is important for our journeys. And all of us in our journeys will have pain. And so we need these words. We need to know how to pray in pain. We're going to go to the very first lament in the Psalms. It's Psalm 3. I want to first tell the story of Psalm 3 with the historical background behind it. And then I want to walk through the lament so that we learn the features of lament. And then a few closing comments at the end about application. Let's talk about the story. It's the first Psalm that we know the background. As Jan read earlier, we know this is the psalm that David wrote when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. Here's what happened. It actually began about seven years earlier when Absalom, who was David's favorite son, he had a beautiful sister named Tamar. There were many sons and daughters. David had several wives. One of the half-brothers named Amnon, became infatuated with Tamar. He pined, he longed, and he planned. And when he had her alone in a very deceiving situation, Amnon raped Tamar. Sadly, David, though he was grieved, did nothing. Never a word to his children, to his sons, nothing. Absalom, however, Tamar's brother, was outraged and determined to avenge his sister's honor. And he plans for two years to kill his brother Amnon. There's a family gathering that Absalom arranges, and he brutally murders Amnon in front of all the brothers. David mourns the death of Amnon but not a word to Absalom or any of the children. Absalom knows he's David's favored son, but he does not trust that affection to overlook his crime, and so he flees across the Jordan River into Gesher, where his wife's family's from, and he lives there in banished exile for three years. Three years. Not a word from David. David, however, is grieved. In fact, if you read the, the story in 2 Samuel, he's moping around. He kind of abandons his roles and responsibilities. He's just crushed by this but does nothing. Finally, David's top military commander, Joab, is sick of it, tired of it, and he sets up an elaborate scheme to get David to agree to have Absalom come back to Jerusalem. And so David finally agrees to have his son move back into Jerusalem and Absalom comes back. David gives him a place to live. But for two more years, 
David will not allow Absalom into his presence. They don't even make eye contact. Do you hear this? Five years of silent treatment. Five years of rejection and shunning. This is now the third monumental sin of David's life, man after God's own heart. There's the rape of Bathsheba. There's the royal reflex to cover it up and have Bathsheba's husband killed. And now there's this sin. And I would argue this sin is the most inexcusable. This sin cost David the most, and he paid huge consequences for this sin. But this sin stands out singularly because David, who himself had received such mercy and forgiveness from God, now refuses it to give, refuses to give this mercy to his own son and shuns him for five years. Let me step out of the story for a minute. I have a pause question for you, for us. And I'm going to give us 20 or 30 seconds to stew on it. Here's the question. Why is the road of mercy and forgiveness the hardest road to travel with our own loved ones? Why are we willing to lose so much with them? During the five years of rejection, when his sons needed a father, David was absent. Absalom is planting the seeds of revolt. David has been leading by absentia. He is disengaged. Absalom knows it, and he begins to play on the anger among the people in ways that would make our current politicians envious. When the seeds are ripe and growing... Absalom makes his move, and in one of the most bloodless, efficient coups, Absalom walks into Jerusalem, takes over the royal palace, the government, and starts looking to assassinate his own father. David crosses the brook Kiriam, flees for the Mount of Olives, and somewhere in the darkness and in the wilderness, David begins to recover in prayer. And Psalm 3 is what he prayed. The darkest moment of his life. Now let's walk through this prayer. Knowing that David's in the wilderness, suffering from great pain of betrayal, circumstances beyond his control, circumstances some of which he caused, he now begins to pray his pain. We begin at the beginning in verse 1 with the first part of lament. And by the way, every lament in the Psalms will have these five elements. They're sometimes in different order, but here are the elements of lament. It begins with direct address. O Lord. We need to see that the Lord there is in all caps in your English translation, which means it's a specific name, Yahweh. It's the Hebrew. It's the covenant name. It's the name that... God gave to Moses that says, I am the God who will keep a covenant with you. I am 
the one who loves you because I choose to, and it doesn't depend on your behavior. It's covenant love. It's promise love, loyal love. This is the one to whom he addresses. It's not a stranger. It's not the empty blue sky. It's Yahweh, the one who promises love to me. But that's all he says. I'm always impressed by how bare the laments are. There's no uh, extra additions here. There's no extra praise words thrown on top. It's, it's very direct, and it's to the point, and it's, there's no window dressing. Oh, Lord. I, I think it's because suffering, more than any other experience we have in our lives, suffering is what puts the lens on life to see its basic structure. And here is the basic structure of life. It's always God with whom we have to deal. It's always God, finally, and in the end, with whom we have to deal. You and I both know, we don't like to think about this. I'm going to say it. It is Lament Sunday. Right now, the things you hold most dear in your life, you are losing. Your health, your wealth, the most significant relationships in your life, you're losing them. You cannot keep them now. You only have so much time left with them. In the end, it is, O Lord. It's lament, it's suffering that brings us to ask the most important questions. Is God sovereign? Is he good? Can I trust him? Is he more to me than a useful fiction? You are losing everything you hold dear. In the end, will you be able to say, he's enough? He's enough. Oh, Lord. From the direct address that goes next, second part of a lament is complaint. Of course, complaint. David says, how many? How many are my foes? How many are rising up against me? David would lose most of his close friends in this revolt. Betrayed deeply. How many are saying God will not deliver him? You see the parallelism. We talked about it in week one in the Psalms. David just wants us to think about this for a minute. How many are my foes? Many rise up. Many are saying God will not deliver me. I I see two things in this, and these are common in laments. First, do you notice how David is trying to recruit God into his troubles? Many are saying of me God will not deliver him. He's saying that God, your honor is on the line here. Engage. This is not just me and my troubles. These are our troubles. They're saying this about you. How about we experiment with this water stone? When we get into trouble, one of the features of lament is that we need to recruit God into our troubles. Make it clear to Him what's going on. And then camp on His name. 
God, this is your name that's in the mix here. Get involved. This is about you too. The second thing, besides recruiting God into the trouble, with the parallelism, I think David is helping us understand what is, I believe, one of the great enemies of the faith, and that is doubt. What David is saying is what's trying to happen here with the world, the flesh, and the devil, they are trying to get me to doubt my faith. They want me to think God will not deliver him. Doubt is one of the great tools of discouragement in our journeys. Let me first of all say this. Waterstone is a doubt-friendly place. Do you know it's okay to have doubts? I like how Tim Keller frames this even subject of doubt when he says, every faith, Christian faith needs a bit of doubt to help it get stronger. Doubt, he says, is like the antibodies that are in our body. They actually insert the virus, and then we get stronger in resistance. That's the way doubt works. Doubt is sometimes comes into our lives, and it actually, when we work it through, it can make our faith stronger. We as a church are a doubt-friendly place. What do I mean by that? It is okay to tell your friends and your small group and your pastors that you are struggling with your faith. We actually encourage that. To come out into the open with that. You will be welcomed here in your doubts. We all, let me, can I just say, we all struggle with doubts at times. I struggle with doubts weekly. I've learned a couple of things. One thing I've learned about doubt is that it's usually not, and I think most people do not leave the Christian faith because they have doubts on the intellectual side of the faith. That is, I don't think most of us have doubts because we suddenly wake up one morning and don't believe anymore that Jesus was an actual person. It's not so much on the intellectual side that we wrestle. It's more on what we we could call, or uh, C.S. Lewis called, the changing moods that we go through. Most believers come into seasons of doubt because people hurt them or circumstances get hard. And that's when we begin to question whether God is sovereign, question whether God is good. It's the moods that change. It's the darkness that descends. That's when we begin to wrestle with doubts. So what do we do when we have those kinds of doubts and we go through seasons of doubting? Let me share share this, and I think you'll, you'll catch on to this. We, in those seasons, need to begin to doubt our doubts. Because what's actually happened during those times is we are substituting one faith position for another faith position. If you begin to doubt your Christian faith, you're probably saying, well, maybe there is no God, or maybe he's not sovereign, or maybe he's not good. But all of that is believed by faith as well. You're substituting one doubt position for another doubt position. So you need to trace that other doubt position out and doubt it. And ask yourself, is this position true? Don't just muck and mire in the doubt. Work the doubt. Trace it out. See what it's stemming from. See what you're truly believing if you're believing something other than what you were believing. Call your doubts back into line by getting back to truth and first principles. Truth calls feelings into line. We don't live by feelings in our lives, we live by truth, and truth calling feeling back into line. Let me just share another pass at this with uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He put it this way. Faith 
in the sense in which I am here using the word, is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change. Whatever view your reason takes, I know that by experience. Now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which Christianity looks very improbably. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your mood, this is good, unless you teach your moods where they get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist. But just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith. Our lives must be governed by truth. Truth calling feelings into line. So now let's watch David do it with the third part of the lament. He's going to doubt his doubts and call truth into line. Call, his truth is going to call his feelings into line. So he confesses, but you, Lord, and it's emphatic there. Usually in the Hebrew, the word order is verb, subject. Here it's subject, verb. But you, O God, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head. Let's just unpack this. I love how David is responding again in parallelism to the many, many, many with the sure shield, glory, and lifter. It's just great poetry. But he says, you are a shield. In, in uh, ancient combat, there were two kinds of shields. There was the four-by-two shield, which you would kneel behind when uh, archers were shooting at arrows at you. That's the big shield. But then there was the buckler shield. That was the one that fit on your forehand, and you would quickly move it so that the shield would arrive before the point of impact. That's the shield here. It's the buckler shield. And what David is saying is that you, God, are my shield, which means you move fast. And notice, all around me, not just one place, but all around me, you move fast. In other words, David's metaphor says this, God is already there before the trouble came. Mm. God is already there before the trouble came. You're my shield around me. You have my outside covered. You're my glory. You have my inside covered. The word glory there is that, that the Lord still in David in the worst situation of his life, he still has a sense that God is with him and that God is his passion, that God is his weight, his heavy. God is still filling every part of David's inner world and inner life. He's the glory. And because of that, He's the lifter of my head. Now, I want us to go quickly to 2 Samuel 15 and just see this verse. This is, this is the roots of the psalm. David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was barefoot. And all the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. But David is able to pray, You are my shield. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head, and so I can walk. David goes on to say, I not only can walk, but I can sleep. I can lie down and rest. Even though there's 10,000 enemies around me, I can still have the peace of heart and mind to sleep. 
That's who God is to David. That's how he finds him right now. My question is, how? How does he find him that way? Well, I would say this. It's in verse 4, which, by the way, in the poetry is the exact center. In the Hebrew words, it's the exact center of the psalm. And in verse 4, it says, I cried out to you, and you answered me from the holy hill. How does David know that God is his shield, his glory, and his lifter? Well, the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. And so David goes back to the holy hill. What's the holy hill? The holy hill is that place in Jerusalem where David himself brought in the Ark of the Covenant, which had in it the jar of manna and the tablets of stone where God made his commitment to his people. God is committed to all of Israel from the holy hill. And not only that, the holy hill is also the place where God had David anointed with the oil running down to say, David, this is my throne. It's not Absalom's throne. It's not even your throne. It's my throne. And I put you here. I made promises to you as an individual. From the holy hill, God sends his love to his people. From the holy hill, God sends his love to David. The best indicator of future presence and behavior is past presence and behavior. And so David, remembering the holy hill, knows who God is because he knows what God has done. And he's spoken from the holy hill. And thus, David is able then, fourthly, to cry out, Arise! I trust in you, so arise! Deliver me! Those uh, Many are rising against me, so you arise, God, and deliver me. Three times that word deliver is in the psalm, and we'll come back to that at the very end. But what about these verses, right? Strike all my enemies on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked. Now, I need to say a few comments about this because when we read these 70% lament psalms, many of them have even worse language than this that makes us squirm a little bit. This, God is the number one subject of the psalms. Do you know what the number two subject of the psalms is? Enemies. And David's not really nice when he talks about his enemies. Strike all my enemies on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked. David is modeling something very important for us here. And with all the, and they're called imprecatory psalms, when David calls down strong, intense feelings on his enemy. He's saying that it's okay to, when, when, when it, our, the holiness of being the image of God in us has been hurt by other people. When people are hurting people, there's something that should outrageous about that. It's grievous. There's injustice when the image of God is hurt in another person. And we must express that outrage. And with these kinds of prayers, God and David modeling it, God is saying, it's okay to be upset when people are hurting people. Give me that rage. Give me that intense, righteous anger. Give it to me. You need to express it. You're not going to go out and do these things. You're not going to go out and hurt people. Vengeance only belongs to God, not us. We are not going to do these things, but we feel like it. So give me those feelings. It's okay to give God our rage and anger when we're hurt, when others move against us. I would suggest it'll help you big time. First, you'll feel better. <laughs> you'll feel better. If you hold those feelings in when you're hurt 
It will eat you up from the inside out, and roots of bitterness will grow, and you will not process anything well. Get those feelings of hurt out. Put them in a safe place. God, this is how I feel. I'd like to smash them. Get it to the God who has a safety lock on wrath. You will feel better. It's interesting to me that because of the way David and others pray like this, there's very little evidence in the Psalms of depression. Because the feelings are emancipated. You'll feel better. You'll think better. Because when you begin to place those feelings of hurt and rage with God, they begin to break up and perspective will begin to creep in. And you'll begin to understand that this is a season in my life. This is a bracket on my life. This event of hurt does not have to define me. It's not the end of my life. Perspective will begin to creep in. I love the story of one of my favorite writers is Kathleen Norris in her book, The Cloister Walk. She actually has gone and taught classes around the country on the imprecatory psalms. She was teaching this class on Psalm 109. Arguably, Psalm 109 is the most famous imprecatory psalm uh, in the Bible. You should read it sometime. It starts out this this kind of uh, um, petition by saying, God, I think it's when David was betrayed by Saul, and he's just getting his anger out with God, and he says, I wish that his mom would die. I wish that his children were wandering beggars. I wish that creditors would seize everything he has. You know, real pleasant kind of praying. (laughs) So Kathleen Norris had taught her class, Psalm 109, and how to pray these imprecatory psalms. So this grandmother in her class went home. As soon as she got home, she found her 8-year-old daughter waiting for her in tears. Honey, honey, what's wrong? And the little granddaughter told the story. She had ridden two miles, this is in the south on a hot August day, two miles, she rode her bike to the public pool. She got to the pool and they were just closing, like five minutes early, she just missed it, they were closing. And not only that, this 15-year-old lifeguard came out and yelled at her, go home, little girl, we're closed. Broke her heart. And she pedaled all the way back, two miles in the southern heat, weeping, crying, she gets into the house. Grandfather tried to comfort her. But she was broken. And so grandma says, honey, honey, I just learned in my class today how to pray this kind of song. And let's pray it together, and it will make you feel better. So she starts reading Psalm 109 out loud to her 8-year-old daughter, and they're praying it together. And finally, after she gets through the verses, oh, may his mother die, and may his children be wandering beggars, and may creditor seize everything he has. The little 8-year-old goes, just, Grandma, stop, stop. He's just a kid. <laughs> Perspective. Perspective. Praying this way brings Perspective. You'll feel better, you'll think better, you'll be better. Folks, until you get the hurt and the pain out with God, you will not be able to forgive anyone. You need to work through those feelings and tell God how much it's hurt. And when you do that, those are the seeds that can one day grow such that you might be able to reach the miracle of forgiveness. Miroslav Vov, who teaches theology at Yale, himself a Croatian and survivor of the atrocities in the Balkan Peninsula, he put it this way. 
and exclusion and embrace. The followers of the crucified Messiah, the main, for the followers of the crucified Messiah, the main message of the imprecatory Psalms is this, rage belongs before God. This is no mere cathartic discharge of pent-up aggression before the Almighty who ought to care. Much more significantly, by placing unattended rage before God, we place both our unjust enemy and our own vengeful self face-to-face with a God who loves and does justice. Hidden in the dark chambers of our hearts and nourished by the system of darkness, hate grows and seeks to infest everything with its hellish will to exclusion. In the light of the justice and love of God, however, hate recedes, and the seed is planted for the miracle of forgiveness. So there's direct address, there's complaint, there's confession of trust, which leads to petition, uh, petition arise, O God, and get them while, while you do it. <laughs> and then finally... David lands, and all the laments land in a verse similar to verse 8. Okay, God, I see it. Salvation is from the Lord. My life and all of its pain is still in your hands. My life is part of your story. I'm still with you. And there's hope, there's resolve, and there's even back into engaging the story. May the Lord bless his people. There's a lament. There's the five movements. Can you begin to incorporate some of that praying way into your life? Let me close with just two quick applications. First, this is for Waterstone. May we, the people of Waterstone, be a lament-friendly church. May we be the kind of church where it's safe for people to share their doubts, where it's safe for people who are in pain and sadness and, and, and lament to have our time and our tears and our words of love, forgiveness, and strength. May we be the kind of people who welcome hurting people here. Or in other words, May we be people of cookies and buttermilk. Let me explain. Cookies and buttermilk. One of the best books I've read on the inner spiritual life of David is called Leap Over a Wall by Eugene Peterson. And there's a great chapter in there about David's lament. And let me just read a couple of paragraphs how Eugene Peterson starts to think about David's lament. There were two funeral homes in my hometown and one newspaper. Each afternoon, my Aunt Frida retrieved the newspaper from the lilac bushes at the side of her front porch. The paper boy delivered his papers from his bicycle. He aimed at the porch, but momentum of the bicycle always carried the paper into the lilacs. He never did learn to compensate for the momentum. So my Aunt Frida had to maneuver her considerable bulk around or into the lilacs to get the paper. She then brought the paper into the kitchen, spread it out on the table, opened to the obituaries on the next to the last page. Pulling out the handkerchief, she kept tucked in her bosom, she dabbed tears from her eyes as she penciled into her calendar the scheduled times of upcoming funerals, designating the place with either a K or a J, K for the Keckley Funeral Home, J for the Jackson Funeral Home. My Aunt Frida made cookies every day, far and away the best cookies of my childhood. 
And on my way home from school, I usually made a looping detour to her kitchen. She was always generous with the first fruits of her oven, served with a glass of cold buttermilk and cookies. And so I was often there for the ritual, retrieving the paper, opening and spreading the paper, reaching for her handkerchief, dabbing her eyes, writing in the time and place of the funeral. It was a ritual conducted daily with solemnity. I knew better than to ask questions or to get in the way when it was being carried out. From my mother, I knew that my Aunt Frida attended all those funerals, all of them, to a day if she was lucky. She sat in the back row at the Keckleys or Jacksons and wept quietly but copiously. She knew neither the men and women for whom she mourned nor the other mourners. She was a connoisseur of pure grief, grief uncontaminated by relationships or other emotions. She wept and she left. Now, Peterson goes on to say that as an adult, he has looked back on that, and there may be some strangeness involved with that behavior. (laughs) But then Peterson writes, maybe my Aunt Frida was more or less unconsciously making up for the widespread avoidance of grief in our culture by making it her specialty. And then Peterson says, 70% of the Psalms are laments. Perhaps there's room in our lives for more lament. Are you willing to work at lament. Your sadness, other sadness, will you engage? Lastly, not only do I want us to be a church that we work at lament, sharing our pain, but I want us to be a church where we share our grief with God. I mentioned earlier that the word deliver is used in the Psalm 3 three times. It's the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means Joshua. It's the, he, it's the Greek word Jesus. Jesus is in Psalm 3. Jesus, the son of David, crossed the brook Kidron and climbed the Mount of Olives where he too was pressed and crushed for our grief, our sins, our iniquities. Jesus carried our sins so that he could end all misery and suffering without ending us. I don't know why you are in pain this morning. I don't know why you have physical pain. I don't know why you have emotional struggle. I don't know why. I don't know the answer. I know what the answer is not. The answer is not that Jesus does not love you. How do I know? Because past behavior is the best indicator of future behavior. And Jesus, when you cry out, answers from the holy hill. On the cross, I love you. On the cross, I'm telling you, I'm your shield. I was in your pain first. And I'm with you in your pain now. Hear my answer from the holy hill. I love you and I'm with you. As we close and before we sing our last song, I want us to be the kind of community where we can openly share 
our lament. And so I'm going to ask any of you who are in pain to get up and leave your seat, stand over here under the cross, and I'm going to read Psalm 3. If you want to tell God how much it hurts right now, come. Come stand right here. Tell God how much it hurts. Let him answer from the holy hill. And let me read Psalm 3. That's all I'm asking you to do. Let me read Psalm 3 and pray over you. All of you who want to say right now, it hurts, God. I want to tell you how much it hurts. Come and stand right here. We'll wait for you. Come. If all of you would just stand, extend your arms here over our sisters. They boldly are telling God how much it hurts. Let's pray. A psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes. How many rise up against me. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him or her. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I awake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. All God's people together say, Amen.